The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Inside Critical Theory brings you this Diet Soap interview. Dan, fellow, you're back on the Diet Soap Media uh, YouTube channel. Welcome back. Thank um, you. Thank you. Before I started, uh, you were telling me that your recent essay in Cosmonaut, which is called Why Bordega Got Democracy Wrong, um, has caused you trouble. Are you actually being ratioed and, and canceled on Twitter? I, don't, I mean, I, I guess to the extent that, that uh, I can be on such things, I don't think I'm an important enough person on Twitter or have enough followers for such things. But mm -hmm. there is definitely – does ratio count where um, – They've quote tweeted me negatively more often than they've retweeted it. <laughs> Does that yeah, if that been, yeah, if you've got negative comments, more negative comments than you've got likes, I think that's a ratio. Or okay, then yes, it, I have. Yeah. It's close, but I've, I've I've definitely been ratioed. So this is a first for me. No, well, congratulations, <laughs> welcome aboard. Thank you. Yeah, the, the ratioing will continue here on um, <laughs> this in this interview. You know what? It, it I I'm not upset at you for this article i think it's okay. a good article uh there's no reason to be angry and it in fact look it's it's tricky business the, the the um uh what what you're arguing here is that uh bordiga um was too fast to reject the the kind of overall principle of democratic particip participation and 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 the kind of uh equality that emerges through democratic forms of uh, governments, governance, whether it's self-governance or representational governance, right? Right. Okay. So, I mean, that, that is, I think, a, a, probably a longstanding uh, criticism of Bordiga. Um, and, but before we dive in too much uh, to your argument, I just want to ask uh, who was Bordiga to let people in, know who Bordiga was and, when and why did he write his essay, The Democratic Principle? Yeah, um, Bordiga is an Italian communist. Um, I, for me, at least, was obscure, but clearly just by virtue of the fact that I've been ratioed at this point over him. Um, not, not so obscure at this point, I suppose. That was just my own naivete about him. Um, but has this, uh, you know, I guess fairly famous or infamous seminal essay on democracy and specifically why, especially... Um, you know, around uh, the rise of the Soviet Union, why he thinks that um, centralism is far more important for the revolution and for, you know, bringing communism global and why ultimately democracy is just a waste of, of everybody's time for the most part. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you pronounce his first name? That's a great question. Is it Bordiga or Bordiga? Is I always say Bordiga, but that's his last name, right? Isn't his first name? Oh, Amadeo, uh, yeah. Amadeo. Um, Amadeo Bordiga, um, also known as Danny DeVito. <laughs> uh, um, 
He was a he was an Italian communist in the early and he was most active in the early parts of the 20th century. Like he was part of the um the Third International. Yep. He was uh, a, a member of the Bolshevik uh party. He was friends with Lenin and Stalin and a part of that the revolution in uh nineteen seventeen on. And he wrote uh his essay um on the democratic principle um in nineteen twenty two, right? After the failure of the German Revolution at, at a point where the Italians uh, communists were struggling. And he was uh was a part of a split with um uh oh now Gramsci, right? Right. Um and he was known as being a left com. He Lenin attacked him in his essay uh, about infantile disorders and the left communists and so on. <laughs> so it's interesting to just to, starting with that. Bordega felt that his crit- criticisms of democracy were to the left of the people he was criticizing. That it was, um, this was not a step towards uh, an embrace of old forms of monarchical power or um, an, uh, a, uh, an embrace of authoritarianism for its own sake, but it was thought to be a left, a far left position. So, right? Right. I mean, and I think, you know, in in reading Bordica, it's like part of what I think grounds him in that is that it's like the fact that the, you know, the term at least democracy or bourgeois democracy seems to be bandied about so readily um, should give us pause at the outset, right? And that's when he sort of dives into this whole thing about like a, you know, it as it's not this, you know, a historical principle that was handed down from on high, um, you know, it's a product of, of material relations, same thing as everything else. Um, and so, why just because this this fits really well we shouldn't celebrate this any more than we celebrate the move from feudalism to capitalism right like there's nothing inherently great about it just because you know the bourgeois came up with it well i you know my feeling about i mean i think that marxists should celebrate the move from feudalism to yeah capitalism. i would agree with you yeah <clears throat> so and and the 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 development of the working class seems to me to be a step towards freedom um, because the, the working class, unlike the peasants, um, had formal freedom um, and they had a, the right to determine for themselves where they worked and for who they worked and at what wage they worked legally and formally. Right. You know, even if uh, material forces and external economic forces were going to be pretty much pushing them around. Um that nonetheless, you know, before that, they the the people working the land and uh, creating the material conditions for society didn't have formal freedom, right? So, I mean, it's a step in the right direction, but I don't think um, that uh, the Bordega would necessarily disagree with that. Um, and you also have to again contextualize uh, Bordega's essay. Because there was, this was being written. This wasn't being written in nineteen, you know, sixty-eight. wasn't being written nineteen eighty-nine. Fair. Fair. It was being written in nineteen twenty-two at a moment where 
the real possibility of socialism seem well, I mean there was 1917 it just happened there was a struggle revolutionary struggle in in Germany um the revolutions of 1848 were within living memory of some people right yeah. um yeah absolutely uh, um and certainly the you know uh the struggles in, of the 19th century were not as far away i mean they were they were as far away as the 20th century struggles are from us today yeah like literally right yeah and i think oh. um those are all fair points in terms of contextualizing the essay um and i guess to the extent that maybe like the durability of his ideas would have died with those eras that that would probably lend itself more to just you know passing it off as not that big a, not that interesting of a topic right to even bring up because it's like oh he was just really trying to make sure that like we closed rank and file and were able to move like that the possibility of communism really stayed not more than just right, you know, but, a latent possibility yeah but i don't know if it means if the fact that 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 it was historically relevant and should be read in its moment means that we can't gain something from it today right it just means that um we have to read it uh within a context of a of a moment where socialism seemed more practical than it does now sure um and i think even taking that into consideration um and this sort of maybe goes a little bit more to the meat of of um what i talk about in the essay or what i tried to get at in the essay is that it's like Bordiga seems very intent, right, on dismissing democracy within this means-ends category, right, and that centralism accomplishes the goals of moving the revolution forward. Democracy does not, for all these these reasons. Um, but in doing so, right, it's like part of that process then is kind of, in a way, jettisoning, jettisoning the whole idea of an autonomous individual, um, and for me, raises this really big question of, right, okay, if the only goal to overcome capitalism is just to completely eliminate class antagonisms, you know, which is part of what I drew out from, from his text, then what are we doing that for, right? Um, because there are a boatload of ways, at least currently, right, that you could ostensibly end cap. We could nuke, you know, nuke the entire planet a couple times over, and that would be the end of capitalism, right? Like, that's not necessarily a good outcome. Um, so putting it in those means ends category for me is part of what makes democracy maybe not just interesting, but essential to trying to at least work towards beginning stages of socialism. And I try, I really did try at the end of the essay to leave open the possibility that it's like, you know, it may turn out after our struggles here and maybe the end of late capitalism that Bordega was right, that like democracy is not going to get us on to full communism and that we'll need some other kind of political way of organizing ourselves, political and economic way of organizing ourselves. Uh, but in the meantime, right, like we have to have some framework for making justifiable choices both within the groupings that are trying to advance against capitalism, but then also for whatever comes after that. Well, I mean, I, I think we should spell out just what his critique of democracy was, mm. right? <clears throat> and then um and, and try to contextualize it a little bit um but i do want to before we get to that i just want to say did he write about means and ends in his essay um the democratic principle 
No, so he doesn't, um, and, and, and to be fair to him, he doesn't like explicitly say, you know, this is a means and ends. He does say at one point, and I want to make sure I get this quote right, um, what is it, the revolution is not, is a fun, is, sorry, is not a problem of organization, but a problem, fundamentally a problem of content, right? So it's right. like, mm -hmm. who cares how we organize this? The point is that right. we need to get the content of the revolution moved forward. And for me, I, that... I need to buy a comb. I just want to point out. <laughs> <laughs> My hair has gone crazy while you talk. All right, all right. All right, go ahead. Keep going. No, I was just going to say, <laughs> by by jettisoning the, the, the issue of how we organize the revolution, the means part, um, you you can end up with Stalin, right? The ends part. Right, okay. See, so I... I, I um... I would take issue with that a little bit um, and I'll, I'll do it very briefly here, but then let's, let's spell out his argument. Yeah. I, um, so my, my, what I would say is that the difference between form and content might be understood uh, just like let's by putting into our contemporary context and say, okay, it's not a matter of what form of corporation or business that you work for. You could work for, um, a big corporation that's international. You could work for a mom and pop shop. You could work for uh, a nonprofit. You could work for um, a workers' co-op. Even I would say, but it's the content of all that all those different forms share in common that will determine your outcome and your and more importantly your class position. So like it, it, it's that, so trying to change the content rather than the form, you can start to see why that seems necessary. Um, and the same thing is true maybe between states. It's not so much the form of the state that matters, whether it's a Chinese centralized one party authoritarian state with a lot of nationalization or a supposedly liberal bourgeois free market state. Um, or a neoliberal state that matters. It's the what's the state in service to? What's the content uh, of the of the state that matters? Right, and I guess to maybe counter that a little bit, though, it's like mm -hmm. in my view, even that position requires some level of relationship between the two, right? Because if all you let's say that you know, to use your example of like the nonprofits, right? Let's say all of those miscellaneous, the workers in all of those settings, right, had great access to the best of the best revolutionary content. If there's no utilization of the content to change the form or conversely the form to help aid the advancement of the content, then each one of them just kind of floats off, I guess, into nothing. Um, but that I had not, I, I honestly had not considered um reading reading what he said in that particular light of the difference between the content and form form yeah specifically way. form as as to um where people are positioned um versus what they're what they're a part of in their moment so right okay so the just to be clear when i hear him say organization i think of him as arguing about should we have workers councils should we have a centralized party? Uh, should we be running people in for the parliament? So a bourgeois party, 
Um, and he might be saying, look, the argument shouldn't be about form, but about content, which is to say, what are we trying to create in this moment, materially and politically for the working class? What are we trying to accomplish as revolutionaries? I mean, to really under, to really decide if if whether or not I'm correct in my interpretation, we'd have to probably reread not just the 1922 Democratic yeah. Principle essay, but also essay in letters between Bordiga and, and Gramsci and uh, you know, look into the history of the moment. But I would just guess overall that um, – from that what Bordiga was most interested in was seizing enough power for the working class through the party yeah to be able to transform the economic foundation of society that would be my guess as to what he was after and that would be that that transformation of the economic economic foundation of society would be the content rather than the organizations themselves and the debates about the forms of those organizations. Right. And again, I just, um, without, without wading too far in the weeds, cause you're right. We don't have all, don't, I don't have all of that knowledge about border, <laughs> but, um, right. either maybe Varn does. Um, but Varn would at least pretend to go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> he was the other person I thought of after I got raised on this is like, Varn's going to see this and be like, no, nope, there's another liberal dork. <laughs> I'm over him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. D- D- Derek Barn, like if if I would say who he is the most like Bordiga as in my imagination. My imagined Bordiga is anyone I know on the left today. Yeah. So yeah. So anyway, uh, I love you, Varn. If you're watching, you know that I do. I love you too, Varn. <laughs> and I hate your guts. All right, okay. Let's well, I did. <laughs> That's our relationship. I have to say both things. It's contractual. So it's anyhow. contractual. You guys have it in writing at this point. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, um, oh. yeah, go go on. So, so we, you were going to argue without all that knowledge that nonetheless. That in spite of that, right, that it's like how we organize ourselves matters. Um, and it matters mm. a lot. And that that's not to say that it matters more than content. Um, but I think that, you know, not to not to try to bring too much out of the Stalin example, right? But it's like they more or less really did try to organize and push through the revolution, right? At least in one place, um, and then that became less and less and less and less justifiable to the actual working class that they said, you know, they were representing. And I know that there's all kinds of controversy around how exactly that gets labeled. I'm not even sure that it's worth trying to delve into that. Um, but it, it's just to say, right, that it's like it's it's again to take the democratic principle back up for a moment, a true rule of the people or a dictatorship of the proletariat, if I could be um, so bold as to posit, uh, requires accountability in the political structure for what's happening in the economic structure and vice versa. And so in order to do that, you actually do have to have some method of organizing those demands and requirements on one another. So just to, uh, what was Stalin's position on these questions at the time? Oh, man, I've, um, I have admittedly not read all of the letters either. Um, but on some of the other like peripheral reading, not strictly between the two of those, but around them, um, 
it seemed like at least initially there was some some level of like agreement on that that it's like hey right now the most important thing is getting get closing rank and file and getting this set up and going um and so you know this to use Borga's words right this like this squabbling parliamentary kind of squabbling and debating stuff in this you know, typical liberal democratic style just wasn't going to get us there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and, uh, Stalin also later on would, uh, drop his, uh, would, would attack, uh, the social Democrats and the, as the reformists and social fascists, um, uh, for a while. So, um, so you're not completely unjustified in, in drawing a connection between, the centralism of Bordega and Stalin's positions. Although I think Stalin was opportunistic in what positions he took. Um, yeah. Um, but, uh, okay. So, um, all right. So now let's just spell out Bordega's cr- criticism of democracy. It, 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 as I understand it here from your, having read you, having read your essay in Cosmonaut, um, Bordega's was primarily against, uh, democracy as an ultimate aim, as a horizon of the political ambition for socialists, because he thought that the democratic participation of all of the people or the masses uh, overlooked the class structure or the class nature of a bourgeois nation, and that there and that a socialist struggle wouldn't be aimed at creating democratic forms of participation, but would be aimed at empowering specifically the working class. That right. right. That it's like that, that bourgeois democracy gives, or at least portends to give people political equality without giving them economic equality. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like specifically the electoral form, which is what he really hones in on. It's right. The idea that your vote means something politically um, is a way, as a sort of a way of obscuring or, or putting a facade in front of the fact that you have no economic, the working class has no economic power, um, and then by extension, right, that the that political power is also out of reach. Mm-hmm. Right, or um, the political power that the working class can gain will always be like shaped by. The demands of capital, right? Better said is is really just that it's it's going to be forever blunted by the interests of capital. So, like, just as an example, the working class could organize and struggle for a minimum wage, right? And that wouldn't be without outside their the realm of the possible for the working class uh, in a democratic society, um, a wage increase. But then, the success of that and the outcome of that will be determined by capitalist relations, the need for profit and so on. Um, the, the, it could be determined by something like inflation or deflation. Um, all these um, externalities to the will of the dictatorship, to the <laughs> dictatorship, no, to the, the uh, externalities to the, to the will of the working class. Um, right. Somehow the working class and dictatorship have become conflated in my <laughs> mind. Uh, um, <laughs> Too much Katron time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, so, so that's his critique and you would argue that, um, that the, that there's still a need for democracy, uh, even as a political horizon, not just 
because it it's the best way to achieve the aims of a socialist struggle necessarily but because socialism and democracy have uh are intertwined in your right in your view. that in in my view that political the political slash economic slash social you know sort of uh post-capitalist world, the, the political economy requires some level of justificatory principles for how we move forward, right? Um, and I guess what, even, even in some of the um, feedback that wasn't just, you know, outright LMAO, you suck uh, on Twitter, was <laughs> um, <laughs> plenty of that. Um, no, but some of that, you know, it's like even Bordiga's position, right? It's like I struggle and I wish I would have the opportunity to ask him and a lot of other people. It's like if if the goal, right, of overcoming capitalism is just to overcome capitalism, um, I'm not sure that, that, that anyone actually holds that position, but that kind of is what, what I end up drawing because it's like he explicitly says that, you know, people – individuals are not autonomous, right? Um, and that um, they aren't necessarily ends in themselves in that respect. And so uh, for me, a big kind of lingering question over Bordigo's whole essay um, is what what is the point of class struggle of overcoming capitalism? And of course, for me, um, that is because, you know, there is this massive system of oppressive exploitation happening to extract surplus value from people. Um, and then there's a whole, con you know, list of long contingencies that go with it that, you know, we could talk about forever. Yeah. So what would you think Bordica's answer would be to that question of like, what is the aim of overcoming capitalism? I would hope, um, I would hope that it would be is, is for, you know, the emancipation of the working class to number one, um, partake in the wealth that capital has created. Um, and also number two, right, to try to at least reclaim some of the alienation that it's experienced under capital. But of course, you mean, that's, you mean um, get beyond? Wait, when you say right, reclaim, right, like reclaim the gap, like try to close some of the gap, the okay. alienated gap that we have hmm. now. Um, mm -hmm. and, and try to find new horizons of, of human possibilities. But that always sounds very, you know, humanistic of me, uh, Marxist humanist of me. I'm, and, I'm all for it. Go, go, go. Okay, I was just going to say, <laughs> well, I was just going to say, it's like I don't know that, that Portico would sign on to any of that. Um, but I would be mm. curious to know, it's like, if not that, then what, right? Um, what is the point of the revolution if not to accomplish some of those things, right? And so I, I tried to point out that it was like in the same way that, you know, we probably shouldn't just immediately throw out notions of free speech um, or freedom of assembly just because they originated in a bourgeois context. It's like the fact that the bourgeoisie has not been able to deliver those things fully is not reason to immediately abandon them, but actually see if they can be taken to a more complete form um, because they are limited as it stands. Uh, we got a taste of them, but they're limited as 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 it stands under capital, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, it's yeah. the same thing with democracy. Well, I mean, I think we might like I I I would I don't know what Bordiga's answer would would be to your question, but I I would dare to say that the Marxist answer to your question would be not so much as to in the short term 
give workers access to the wealth that they've already produced, although, um, and certainly not in the form of consumer goods, mm-hmm. although that would be part, you know, part of it. But that, I think a lot of times when people think about the wealth, the, the, that kind of wealth, they think about immediate uh, consumer goods or other kinds of goods that people would use it for their own personal gain. Um, and it would be more that than that they would, they would be turning over the, uh, productive, uh, capital as well to the working class right. would be not just the, the, uh, consumable wealth, but the wealth that can then be used to, uh, create more, uh, uh, of what we need and to cr- reproduce our society would be turned over to the working class, which means that it would be a way for the working class to be free and also responsible for, for creating the, the social relations and conditions which shape the world. It would be the idea is to put the work, the, the working class in charge of history and historical development and, and the future, which is, two ways of saying the same thing. Right. Um, the second thing is clearer than the first. So of course I say it the, the less clear way to begin with. <laughs> um, um, that's what I would think the point of socialist. Right. Would be. And I guess to, to just ask you is like, but why, right? Like why does, why does any of that matter? And it's because I think there is kind of an underlying moral thread to all of that, that says like, you know, the way that it's set up right now is wrong. I mean, that it's the exploitation, this, the extraction of surplus value is immoral. It's wrong. Um, and so to put people, the working class, in that position to take hold of the future, to take hold of history, right, is to try to put it in right relation um, with, oh, I, I shouldn't have used that term because I, I hate it, uh, to, to try to, like, um, adjust our horizons then to something that capital can't give us because what is happening right now is wrong. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that, the, the problem with that moral, uh, I mean, I don't think you're entirely wrong. Obviously like the, 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 um, the tricky thing is that the, the very morality or ethics that we turn to, to try to judge capitalist relations are, are kind of come out of yeah the bourgeois revolutions and the and um capitalism uh, by extension itself so like liberty and fraternity and equality and freedom from want even um are bourgeois values um you know you can look back historically and see that there are morality tales about how awful it would be uh, to live in a world of plenty without hunger how lazy and stupid stupid and stupefied humanity would become how vain humanity would become these are you can find these little mythical tales um uh and on the other hand you know for the majority of humanity i would say those morality tales have, have also been you know uh daydreams and fantasies of of escape from drudgery and misery. Uh, yeah. So, um, and so, yeah, obviously the first level that you would want to achieve is to give everyone in society and especially the poorest and the most downtrodden, but also those, especially those who are responsible for working to recreate the world, you know, freedom from want, freedom yeah. from 
starvation, freedom from misery. Um, because, but, but why? It's not so much that that is the end of the road. Hedonistic uh, self-satisfaction is not the end of the road. It's also because an additional value from the bourgeois project is freedom yeah, and self-responsibility and self-creation. Um, so the aim is like society itself should be its own product self-consciously its own product and that means the individuals within it should be that so go, go back to your essay democratic participation uh and and freedom to participate to have a, a say an equal say amongst all the people seems connected to that uh the bourgeois aim of of self-responsibility and self-creation right because if you have a centralized power that's dictating to the majority what's to be done then you know there's a there's a giving up of that self responsibility to the right. centralized power um i guess bordega would say that there is um that i mean this this is where it gets tricky i think bordega would say in a in, in a given instant uh, unfreedom is necessary for freedom in this dialectical move, right? You have to, um, uh, to, you have to reduce the freedom of all in order to break with the class power that sets up the totality of relations. That right. Work. Um, and I, and, and, you know, I, while I can accept that as a, as a dialectical move, um, it still raises the question, right? Um, which I talk a little bit about towards the end of the essay. It's like, who gets to make that call, right? Is it Bordiga? Is it Stalin? Is it Stalin plus Bordiga? Is it Stalin plus Bordiga plus Gramsci and Lenin? Like, who who is it that gets to make that call? Um, and so that brings us to this 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 world then that 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 Reiner Forrest, one of the you know the more recent Frankfurt editions. Uh, talks about sort of like justification, right? It's that like we naturally engage in justifications for particular political processes um, or economic setups, right? Including capitalism. Mm -hmm. Capitalism is so good at it that it's maintained that that hegemony for quite some time now um, against pretty much all threats to it um, mm -hmm. because those justifications sort of like how Bordega talks about democracy. It's like the, the justifications for capitalism are so strong that they seem axiomatic at this point for so many people, or at least that they are so difficult to overcome, even theoretically, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is capitalism, mm -hmm. to use the cliche. Right. Um, so it's funny that to start this conversation, you said, well, why should we overcome capitalism? I mean, one way to do it would be to destroy the world. That was your. <laughs> we could, right? Like theoretically, though, like we could, right? Like that would be an end. Like we would accomplish the end of the revolution in that sense. We would eliminate all class antagonisms if we just wipe the wipe the slate clean. Not something I'm advocating for. I, maybe there's tankies with that position. I don't know. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly some nihilists out there and pessimists who might secretly wish for that. I think the the whoever the director of. Um, don't look up. Uh, has hold secretly in his heart of hearts holds that holds oh, that shit. position. Okay, <laughs> you know because at the end of Don't Look Up, the asteroid hits the Earth and everyone dies. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, sorry, okay, that doesn't sorry, shock Sorry, spoiler me. alert. No, that's fine. That's fine. I don't need that in in 2022. I'm not over 2021 yet, so yeah, it's cool. 
um, yeah, <laughs> but but it seemed to me when I watched it, and I'm, it was a wish fulfillment fantasy for for the director and the people within it. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I okay, go back. I'm going to let you finish because I think I cut you off from a larger point. It wasn't about the end of the world as as your solution for overcoming <laughs> capitalism. It was about why it's necessary to have a better vision that includes democracy. Right. And so if we circle back then to this notion of, of justification, right, that it's like even if we have to if let's 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 just take it as a granted, right, that we're going to have to limit certain freedoms, right, Lim, typical liberal democratic freedoms in order to overcome capitalism, those still need to be decided upon and justified in some way that makes sense. Not well, makes sense isn't the right word, really, that like there is sufficient level of agreement about how we move forward, because otherwise it's just a weird technocrat dictatorship that's saying, well, this is the way that it's got to be done. You guys get in line. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so for force, that's like there's sort of this non-negotiable veto right for those most affected by the decision making to have a say in said decision making. Um, you know, and and to pull in my my your old my book that you have no longer I don't what it my so book there's zero. A, your your title is zero books yeah yeah, yeah. which I is, which is, I commissioned and which you know I, I'll still get a cut of when it when the book sells so okay. everyone buy it yes, <laughs> um, um, but to use that example right that it's like name the book way, it's oh borderlines borderlines yeah. um, that immigration that way or even the notion of citizenship is broken in that sense because the people outside of the body politic have no way of participating in said body politic in order to be readily included, right? In mm -hmm. the decisions that affect them the most, which are those that exclude them. Um, right. And right. so in that sense, right, the, the, my, my notion of democracy is more than just electoralism right which which i a hundred percent side with bordega on that like if that's all that a democracy in it you know meaningfully amounts to then yeah let's just jettison it because it hasn't produced jack shit um mm. it readily fits within a capitalist framework and any any concessions that you make even if they are decent footholds like you know eight hour working days stuff like that are not never going to be emancipatory by definition um but for me a radical democracy then is not just Bordega's critique, right, of the political piece, um, but also that you pull in the economics, right? Um, and so to use force example, right, it's like we often, you know, it gets talked about in like sock dem circles of, of like the distribution of things, right? So like a mother dividing up slices of pie, we think about, okay, well, equality would mean that, you know, everybody gets the same piece. But a true, like, radically democratic idea adjusted that requires justification is not just what size each person gets, but who gets to make the call on how that pie gets cut. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And so, in that respect, right, then the political economy piece for democracy is a must, at least in terms of figuring out what our next steps are towards accomplishing communism. Because if we do it in, at least the ways that have been tried so far, right, with some sort of central authority or, um, you know, a, a party system that ultimately is not connected directly to working class interests, 
you end up with some kind of weird, you know, ground that no one really wants and is then just trying to at least keep itself going without necessarily advancing. Like there's nothing then inherently valuable about a party that's not necessarily advancing working class interests at that point because it's disconnected democratically from mm-hmm. the, the interest it's supposed to be serving. Right. Okay. So let me see if I can uh, offer a, a devil's advocate perspective here uh, inside with Bordica for a moment, see if I can figure out how to do it using your pie analogy here. Well, one of the things that comes to mind when you talk about distribution and, and cutting up the pie um, is that the, how that metaphor fits so well with a statist welfare and specifically a welfare state kind of right. political perspective that you take the wealth of society as if it's already a given and the task politically is to divide it up. Right. And so that, you know, that means that there's some funding which we can distribute uh, out into the world through the state. Right. And that, so who's going to do it? Well, we want that decision of who, how the, the already given wealth is going to be distributed to be made democratically. Oh, well, and then this is where we start to see that maybe electoralism isn't something you can escape so easily because in society now, what mechanisms are there for the democratic decision-making around the distribution of the wealth that's already been generated? It's only the democratic state. It's only yeah. like a parliamentary state. Um, so, and, and, and then at that point, well, we can't reject electoralism anymore. We can't find an extra... Uh, political way to to make these kinds of decisions but already what you know just through your analogy we've already limited our political vision down to a level which is well within the the, the what is in a bourgeois society and the working class the actual the people who actually made the pie or the cake <clears throat> are excluded uh, even if they even as they vote through distribute to distribute because they have not been given the power to decide what the size of the cake is going to be, what the flavor of the cake is going to be, whether they want to bake a cake, um, <laughs> you know. Yes, yes, or, that's okay. Uh, okay, yeah, so, no, these are all okay. This is all really good stuff, actually, and it actually gets to the heart of like one of somebody wrote a letter to the editor already about this, was sort of just like, hey, there's not a very specific notion of what he means by democracy and his critique of Bordigo, right? Um, which I think is actually a fair point, and it's it's one that's hard to nail down. Um, but let's let's pick up. Let's just keep running with the pie metaphor because uh, okay, okay. you did it, and I actually like where you took it. Yeah. Um, so if we accept that, right, that it's like okay, it's it is easy to fall into the trap of of this limited horizon then of just looking at the question of distribution, right? Um, mm. Who's who's getting to make that call? This is exactly then the kind of radical thinking, though, that moves democracy beyond the bourgeois form to something bigger, because you could readily take those same people and say, okay, hang on a minute. Yes, there's this question of how we cut this up, but why are we eating pie in the first place? Who is this person that said that we had to make the pie, right? So all of a sudden then, once again, that question can just be extrapolated, it can be grown, it can be inflated to capture more and more things that are then pulled into the democratic 
process, which again, for me is not just a question of vote casting, but ultimately of, of that deciding and recip reciprocal demands between people, right? And where the individual ends, the collective begins. I want to talk about my novel, Batch Batch Revolution. Yes. I do that every <laughs> once in a while. But um, in Batch Batch Revolution, I tried to write a scenario up where we got beyond capitalism. That was like one of the major things I was trying to do. There's a bunch of other things too, like have a fulfill a wish fulfillment where I could beat my son at a video game and come up. <laughs> have <laughs> so you done my, that yet? No. I, well, in the book, the, the main character's dad can beat him at the video game because he has help from an AI. So, <laughs> so he can win. And that was, you know, me living down that, living out that fantasy in, in prose. Um, but the other part of it was to think through how to overcome the value form, how to overcome capitalism. And the way I figured it out was, okay, an AI creates an augmented reality world, which he or she, the AI's gender fluid, um, <laughs> it seduces humanity into uh, by offering them games and experiences which most match their particular demographic desires. So like the mother is given the chance to go back to the nineties um, for an example. And, but the point was so the AI then is deciding what's being produced and how it's being distributed um, by, but, but also it set up a system where the participants who are through playing games, creating the pie, they somehow the, the game playing is producing the things of the world. It's set up to, it's perfectly structured and efficiently put together. So the augmented reality games also create computer chips and porta potties and Soylent and all the things you would need, right? To I mean, the simplification of 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 the the things of life, so that you know, because you don't need too many complex real things when you're living in a virtual world, right? But sure. nonetheless, the, the real things are being generated um, through the the games. And oh, what sorry, games... one second, Doug. We've got no. a child emergency. No problem. No problem. Oh, look, you got a little baby. <laughs> what's the, what's your baby's name? Her name's Soul. S O L. It's a Spanish for son. Yep. Yeah. That's, no, no. They're cute. How old? Uh, so she is now four weeks, and then my son is three years. Awesome. Yeah. That is four weeks is a, is a fun age because they sleep all the time. Yep. Yep. It's pretty magical at the moment. Yeah. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, other than the midnight feedings, this isn't so bad. And then, the yeah. And you probably is... don't have to do that. I'm guessing you're not the one doing the <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, you know, occasional bottle like now, but otherwise, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. not bearing the workload that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. So, um, enough of my, uh, patriarchal shit lordness. Um, no. so, <laughs> uh, Back to what I was saying. Okay, so rewind. The games in this, um, uh, uh, in my novel, determine what's produced and also where things need to go. The more popular games determine, uh, you know, what uh, where the resources are needed, and also what's being produced. So you have this mediating mechanisms that that uh, people are participating in, um, and it's democratic in so much as everyone gets to choose what game they want to play, right? Which determines what's made. But on the other hand, the initiating conditions are all set up by an AI built by the NSA uh, and which gets free and takes over the world. So, I mean, is that 
would that fit with your democratic vision? Um, no, but I am curious before we get to that, is this dystopian world dystopian for you or is this ideal? Um, both. Okay. <laughs> like it, it is perceived as by the protagonist, the teenage protagonist as a dystopian uh, uh, outcome. Okay. You know, he, he loses his girlfriend, for instance, to the to the augmented world. Um, so th- he's very sad about that. Um, but uh, my perspective was that it could be such a situation could be the beginnings of an actual socialist society. If it once the gamers start to be the programmers. Okay. Well. The programmers of the AI. Yeah. And yeah. The, and the games. Okay. Well, see, in like that instance, then it's interesting. But um, I would say that that reaches some level of, of democracy, right? As if the if if the workers, if the programmers, if they become programmers and therefore are able to make the AI basically accountable to what I'll call the working class in your example, right? Or the mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the the people producing value. Um, and so again, that that for me is the foundational piece of democracy that I'm not saying I can't ever forego or that there won't ever be something that moves beyond moves us beyond that. But it's like there has to be that accountability piece of of like being able to pull the decision makers back into the people that are impacted by that decision making. Um, and so in that I mean, sense, right, like capitalism always, 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 always fails in this respect, right? Because it's like, by definition, economic, the economics of it all um, exclude us from the means of production. Right. Yeah. Right. Listen, we've, we've been talking for 49 minutes. That's just about enough time. I want to give you a chance to, to um, take care of your baby 